Welcome to the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I believe it takes a strong man to appreciate a strong woman, and I'm here to bring a unique perspective to empower both sexes. I love talking with health experts, thought leaders, influencers, and people who have insightful information to share with us about our health, our society, and our pursuit for success and prosperity. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, I have Dr. Jason Selk, who is one of the nation's premier performance coaches who has worked with business titans and superstar athletes. He was the director of mental training for the St. Louis Cardinals and was with the team for both the 2006 and 2007 World Series. Dr. Selk earned a doctorate in counseling and sports psychology at the University of Missouri. He is a five-time best-selling author, and his newest book is called Relentless Solution Focus. Welcome to the show. Amy, thanks for having me. So I was recently thinking about sports psychology, and you know when this was? It was when the Dallas Cowboys were playing Tampa Bay, and their kicker, Brett Maher, got up there and missed four consecutive field goals. And like the first two field goals, I thought, wow, this really sucks. And then after the fourth one, I thought, oh my gosh, I feel terrible for this guy. Like, could he be like the next... Rick Ankiel. I felt really bad for him. So I'm kind of curious with your experience in sports psychology, if after the game he sits down with you, what are you saying to him? Well, first of all, I think anybody listening, whether you're a professional athlete or even people in the business world like you and I, it's difficult to be 100% on your game 100% of the time. The difference, I think, for the pro athletes, you mentioned Rick Ankiel. Obviously, he had some trouble in, in the day. And then you had the situation with the kicker for the Cowboys last week, the difference, those guys, they got the whole world watching them. And that's a little bit easier for us. When we make mistakes, oftentimes not many people hear about it or see it. Okay. So for them, it's a little bit different, but whether it be a business person or a professional athlete, it really goes back to the blocking and tackling. And with mental training, I approach mental training in terms of skill development, just like if it were physical training, that it's not a pep talk, it's a learned process that you learn hopefully before the season begins, and then throughout the season, you're working on making improvements to your plan so that as you get to the more important, higher pressure situations, you're more able to consistently perform. So With him, and and look, this is not that uncommon where situations like that happen up on the big screen and my phone does ring the next day, it really is a matter of, hey, let's get back to the game plan and let's just pick one thing to get a little bit better at. Oftentimes, you get yourself focused on getting on offense or improving one thing and it weeds out the negative stuff that's going on. You know, I had a good friend of mine. He was the head groundskeeper for the Rams. He still does a lot of the NFL games, you know, the international games. He's one of the head greens guys in the whole country. And I asked him one time about my yard. I said, hey, his name's Barney. He's a really good friend of mine. I said, Barney, I got all these weeds in my yard. What do I do? And he said, he said Jay, you want to get rid of the weeds? Grow more grass. And it's the <laughs> same concept that don't worry about stopping the negative stuff. Get yourself, get your mind focused on offense. What causes you to score points? And let's be aggressive in attacking the blocking and tackling of scoring points. And so how important is it for the coach in that situation 
to keep his trust and his kicker and not pull him. I mean, they got lucky that they were winning by a lot and they stuck with him. But, I mean, what's going through a coach's mind there and what are you advising them? Well, I mean, the coach has got to watch out for the coach. You know, I tell the coach the same thing. Listen, coach, you know what your plan is. You know what your blocking and tackling is. you got to execute on your plan. And if this kicker doesn't fit into that plan, then so be it. Everybody's got to do their job, especially when you're talking about professional sports like that. It's really about making sure you know what your role is and you got to take care of your role, just like any organization in the business world. Every person has to do their job. If the coach, if, if he thinks it's the best thing to bring in another kicker, bring in another kicker. So I'd tell the coach, look, I don't know. You can't control what's going on in his head or what's going to happen out there. You got to make sure you control what you can control. So you worked with the Cardinals from 2006 to 2011, and that was obviously the time that Tony La Russa was there. Hall of Fame manager, second most winningest manager in uh, baseball history, and he's got many of his kind, right? Bill Belichick, John Wooden, Bobby Knight, Bobby Cox, all have a great understanding, I feel like, of sports psychology and like the psyche of what it takes to motivate their team and their players and kind of navigating those complex systems. Do you agree like some of these greatest coaches, they have a really strong understanding of this mental fortitude? Yeah, I think undoubtedly. And Tony is a, a great example. In fact, when I was with the Cardinals, we were fortunate enough to win two World Series. You know, and in that time, he introduced me to several of the people you just mentioned right there. I remember him pulling me into the equipment room and introducing me to Belichick and Bill Parcells. Oh, yeah. goodness. Yeah, they're uh, buddies, yeah. But with LaRussa, I would tell you, again, he was very good at knowing what he needed to control. And he didn't micromanage me. It was one of the things I really enjoyed being with the Cardinals when I was with the team is they brought me in to do my job. And I didn't have anybody telling me what I should or shouldn't do. It became my responsibility to control what I could control and make sure that those players were more mentally prepared than anybody we were going up against. You know, and I think I did a very good job of that. That's why I was able to be with the team for six years and leave on my own terms. But had that not been the case, you know, the expectations were pretty clear. You know, they told me basically day one, if the players you work with aren't better after working with you, then you will not be with this team. I never had a signed contract. It was not my choice. I would have loved for them to give me a yearly contract. But again, I think in those very successful organizations, people are clear on rules and roles. And micromanaging is not something that Tony La Russa was going to do. If he had to micromanage you, you're going to be fired. and He was going to bring in the next guy that could get his job done. Yeah, so I know Tony very well, and he does some endorsement stuff for Victory Men's Health. But we've had numerous hundreds, probably at this point, conversations around leadership and mental toughness and some different scenarios that he's run into among his time in his leadership role. And I can see him being very, like, protective and territorial of his clubhouse. So did it take a while for you to get his buy-in, or how was that? You know, I was really, really lucky. I went down to spring training. I tell this story a lot. I won't tell the whole story. But I went down to spring training thinking I had a contract signed for a whole year as director of sports psychology. This was 2006, March of 2006. And I hadn't met Tony La Russa yet. You know, I did all the scene, the work behind the scenes with Walt Jockety. And anyway, when I get down there, 
I meet Tony LaRusa right before I'm supposed to go start a two hour presentation with the team. And Tony looks at me and he, he's like, you have 10 minutes, you don't have two hours and you search contract. And I thought, Oh no, you know, I'm such a rookie here. But once I went in there for that 10 minutes, I think Tony saw that I was prepared and that I knew what I was doing. And, and like I said, he really didn't micromanage me at all. So it was pretty fast that I got the buy-in and, and it was just understood that if I wasn't going to do my job, I was done. And I knew that going in. And, and although it, you don't necessarily like to hear that, it's also on one level, very, very good to have your expectations managed that, hey, look, this is not minor league stuff here. This is not low level business. This is as high and as important as it gets. And if you're not going to be prepared every single day, you don't belong here. So he made that very clear to me. And I grew up in a situation where if somebody gives me that challenge, I'm going to step up and do my job. So the buy-in was pretty quick, pretty good once I got through that first 10 minutes. So the 10 minutes, you took that two-hour speech down to 10 minutes on the fly? Well, I thought (laughs) I was going to have to, but I got through the first 10 minutes and then people started asking questions. One of my main tools with even people in the business world as well as sports world is a mental workout. It's five steps. And I went into the clubhouse that morning. I said, I originally thought I had two hours. It's going to cover all five steps of the mental workout. I, I don't have two hours. I've just been notified I have 10 minutes. So I'm going to cover the first step. And I covered the first step and it took like eight minutes. And I said, okay, does anybody have any questions? And then Dave Duncan, the pitching coach said, well, what do you think about teaching the second step? And, and I looked at Tony and Tony kind of gave me the nod. And so I taught the second step. So 10 minutes turned into 20 minutes. And then Scott Rowland, who big day for him this week, is getting inducted. He said, well, what about the third step of the mental workout? And I looked at Tony and he said, go ahead. And so that's kind of how that 10 minutes, it actually turned out to be the two hours. But I had to work myself back into the two hours. I'll say that. <laughs> okay, so these are guys playing at the highest level, making a lot of money to do it. Let's put that aside for a second and focus on like youth sports. It's out of control these days, club teams, parents running these kids all around. Do you ever do anything with youth sports clubs or young athletes? And maybe what suggestions do you have for parents or these volunteer coaches in a lot of the situations to kind of mentally manage some of these younger athletes? I haven't worked with amateur athletes in a long time, but we certainly have people on staff that work with the amateur athletes. But you're right, and it's really no fault to people in the athletic world, because I don't think there's a whole lot of education around what you're supposed to do to be mentally ready or mentally tough. There's a whole lot of people saying mental toughness, you know, 90% of success is all about mental toughness. But if you ask people, okay, so what do you do to actually train or develop mental toughness? most people don't have a clue. And I think this was the reason I had so much success when I was first getting into the sports world is I was the first person, and I put this in my first book, 10 Minute Toughness, which is on pace to be one of the best-selling sports psychology books of all time, is I actually said for the first time, this is what an effective mental training program looks like. Mental toughness is no more a pep talk than physical toughness. You know, you can't have the greatest physical trainer in the world give you a pep talk on how to make your biceps strong without doing any work. Like people understand that, but the same is true. Your brain is a muscle just like the bicep that I can teach you all day long what exercises to do, but until you actually do those exercises 
consistently enough daily slash weekly, you can't expect mental toughness. Mental toughness is not a pep talk and it's certainly not magic. It's training. But again, and still these days, it's still somewhat unknown that mental training is how you develop mental toughness. I think you still have so many people trying to, in a podcast or in a social media post, develop their mental toughness. And, and I think it's an introduction to it and you can kind of learn the information, but you must get yourself in the mental weight room, if you will. And I think Again, the program I put together in 10-Minute Toughness, I'd still tell you, and I, I don't think you'd get much argument, it's still the most effective mental training program for sports and for business in existence. Because I think as a parent, you're kind of watching some of this stuff play out and you're kind of wondering, okay, these kids haven't hit puberty yet. Like when do you start having these conversations? What conversations are you? You want to make sure you're the best parent, right? My son plays all different sports, but we have kids on the court that are crying, throwing fits not paying attention. And you're like, oh my gosh, when do these conversations start? Because you want to make sure you're leading them in the right direction. Yeah. And so if you just kind of look biologically, 12 would be the very beginning of when you want to introduce mental training. And I would say it this way, for girls, 12 is the very beginning biologically when there's enough connections in the brain where it's going to start to, the work will produce results. Probably a little bit later for boys. We're a little bit slower to mature than ladies. I would say 13 is kind of the beginning for boys. And then it's just introductory. So, you know, people are listening. Parents, get a copy of 10-Minute Toughness. Get a copy for your coach. And then don't worry about all the chapters in the book. At those early ages, minimum 12, earliest 12, start looking at the first five chapters, which would be the mental workout. And in the mental work, don't teach a 12-year-old all five steps of the mental workout. Teach them the first step, which is just the centering breath. Teach them how to get their heart rate under control when they start to get nervous, when they, when they get into a performance. And then as they age, you can start to teach them a little bit more. But 12 really is that beginning of, I didn't even think about introducing this to my own children until they were 12. And my son... <laughs> closer to 13, 14. My daughter's a little bit more mature than my son at an earlier age. So I started with them about 12. I think that's good advice because parents are wondering and they don't know where to turn. And so that's absolutely great advice there. So the book that you recently, or your newest book, I should say, Relentless Solution Focus is the name of it. You talk about three steps or three ways to refocus your mind. Can we talk about those three? You want to go through them? Yeah, I would probably, instead of hitting the audience with all three steps, I think I would just probably just simplify it. I would say this. Human beings, our brains are built in a way that they work against us when it comes to high-level performance. And it goes back to long, long time ago, hundreds of years ago, when we were in a position of needing to advance the species. So it really comes, people have heard fight or flight. Hundreds of years ago, fight or flight was a really important thing because if we weren't constantly aware of all the threats out there, it was likely we would end up in the lion's den that night. Now, that threat that I talk about and that constant awareness, people these days, it's very, very common for them to constantly worry about things that are never going to happen. And it's not mental weakness. That's mental normalcy. It's totally normal. That's problem-centric thought. 
And again, it's built in because hundreds of years ago, our species would not have survived without that. Now, fast forward hundreds of years, we live in a much safer time. And that PCT built into the biology is now really counterproductive for health, happiness, and performance. And let me explain why. When I allow my mind to focus on a potential negative, which is completely normal, my brain releases cortisol into my bloodstream. Cortisol, it's the neurotransmitter responsible for all the negative emotions, stress and anxiety, fear, anger, depression, guilt. Problem with cortisol is not only does it make you feel bad, but it's the punctuation, it's the beginning of fight or flight. So it actually, your brain begins to disable itself for detailed thinking. You feel like garbage and you become stupid. And it's totally normal. I mean, think about this. You'll do a hundred things right. One thing less than perfect. And when you're driving home from work, where's your mind to go? Normal people would say, I'm zeroing in on that imperfection. And it's normal, but it's a pure sign of mental weakness. And in fact, it will cause people to underperform and to be unhealthy, unhappy. People that have learned the opposite of this PCT is this relentless solution focus. It's kind of the opposite of PCT. And we can train our brains so that the PCT goes away and RSF is now the doesn't take that much training. But the RSF, people live up to 14 years longer. And there is just no doubt we are happier, healthier, and significantly more successful in those extra years as well. So it Again, I tell you, the book is really broken into two parts. One, you got to be able to identify when your brain is doing the wrong stuff. And the wrong stuff is totally normal. Focusing on all those negative things or all those things that could go wrong, that is counterproductive. Most people think, well, when I think about what goes wrong, that allows me to think about what I'm going to do about it. That would be wonderful if it were true. But our brains are actually not built that way. When a person begins thinking about the problems or the negativity, there's this part of the brain called the caudate, and it's a loop that you essentially just start over and over thinking about the negative, and it turns into more of the negatives and deeper negatives, and you can have your, yourself convinced your life is a mess and you're a loser with one single problem because of that caudate. But we can change with some training, and it's really less than three minutes a day. We can change that caudate. We can retrain how the brain operates so that once it recognizes I'm thinking about the negative, then I can just simply ask myself this question. Okay, what's one thing I can do right now that could make this better? And even an inch of improvement, any answer to that question whatsoever shifts you from that loop, that negative loop of problem thinking. And when we start thinking about solutions, your brain releases a whole new set of neurotransmitters norepinephrine, epinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, those neurotransmitters, not only do they make you feel better, that's the positive energy, but they make you smarter. And so this relentless solution focus, you know, it's one of the things, well, I'll say it this way. I've written five books. I've never made my children read any of them, but this relentless solution focus, they've all read it because they wanted to. And I think they started reading it. They're like, oh my gosh, you know, and, I got two kids in college now, and both of them unsolicited have said to me, Dad, I didn't realize the advantage you were giving me. You know, I, I have such an advantage against my peers because I understand how my brain works and how to get to that solution focus 
instead of that garbage PCT. Yeah. How did you come up with the name of the book? Like, what does the word relentless mean to you? Well, if you have a breath in your body, if you have a heartbeat in your chest, you must be in control of your thoughts. And I stumbled across this RSF. I was out mowing my yard 25 years ago. And I'm mowing my yard, pushing the mower back and forth. And I'm looking at my brown grass in my yard. And dogs, and you know, they go out and turn the grass from green to brown. And I'm looking at my neighbor's yard. And it looks like Bush Stadium over there, you know. And I'm, I'm thinking about these brown spots in my yard. And I'm starting to convince myself I'm a complete loser in life because I can't get my yard right. And I remember I, I used to always, when I would mow, I would take a notebook out there because, you know, nobody's messing with you when you're mowing. You can really get into some deep thought. So I always had these ideas and I stopped mowing. I went over and I said, okay, this is what my brain's doing right now. I'm, I'm focusing on these brown spots. And, and then six, seven minutes later, I've got myself convinced I'm, I'm not good at my job. I'm a bad husband. I'm not the best father. You know, all kinds of garbage. It, it just didn't make a lot of sense. And so I go back and I start mowing. And the next thing I started thinking about was, okay, what am I going to do to make the brown spots better? And I ended up, my first thought, just to give you a little Higher show of character. My, <laughs> well, my, my first thought was, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gas my neighbor's yard so my yard doesn't look so dang bad, relatively speaking. Now, I, that one kind of went away quickly, but it ended up, I said, okay, when I'm done mowing, I'm going to take a six pack of beer over to my neighbor's house and I'm going to have him teach me what he does with his yard. And he, you know, it was one simple little thing. It was, I can't even remember now, but it was I was bagging my grass and he said, you got to get a mulching blade so that it just kind of puts the fertilizer back on top of the grass anyway. But the point was, once I started thinking about the solution, I stopped having those negative thoughts. I stopped beating myself up and thinking I was a complete loser. And then I I said, oh, this is what they mean about the biological release, you know, cortisol and those positive neurotransmitters. So I kind of started putting it together. And then I started studying success and realizing this is probably the number one pattern of the people who are most successful is they have that RSF tendency instead of allowing the PCT to kind of dominate their thoughts and their lives. Yeah, that's so interesting because I'm not a Debbie Downer person, but I do during the day when we have problems arise, I want to think about them on the way home, but I'm thinking about them in a way that I feel like I'm trying to come up with the solution and I want to figure out how to execute it differently next time to improve. So I don't feel like it typically weighs me down, but it's something good to be cognizant of how your brain is processing that information. You know, my son's going through social media training or like a little class or whatever. And his teacher said something that I thought was interesting. It's okay to be okay. And it kind of goes back to this mindset that you're talking about. You see a lot of people on social media, like posting their problems and talking about their problems and posting these things, feeling like it's an expression. You know, they're showing what they're going through and they're showing their emotion. But like, what are your thoughts on that? Because I feel like it has the tendency to breed this negative pattern in your life. But maybe you feel differently. No, I think there's definitely some truth in what you're saying. I look at it this way. You know, I tell people all the time and I tell myself this, you must give yourself permission to be human. We're imperfect beings. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to struggle with things. That's okay. Don't beat yourself up for being a human being, imperfect. Combine that with always have one thing, though, that you're trying to be the greatest at. Now, I don't care what that one thing is. And I always told my kids this, you know, and I think this was a much more effective way, you know, growing up, I certainly have, you know, my son's wild and we had all kinds of wild experiences with him trying to keep him on track. And, and I, I knew it came right from me. I was the same way when I was young, just 
kind of too much energy, but I could lecture him on what he was doing wrong, or I could try to motivate him to be great at one thing. And it goes back. It's really kind of that same thing. My friend Barney was telling me about the grow more grass. Instead of trying to kill the weeds, the mistakes that we make in life, who cares? We're going to make mistakes. There's going to be weeds. Just focus on growing more grass and to try to make it so that a human being can actually do it. Just pick one thing. Have one thing, always one thing you're trying to be the best in the world at. And if you have that, good things are going to happen. Yeah, so let's expand upon the power of the mind because let's look at the placebo effect, for example, in medicine. I mean, it's a thing for a reason because your mind can talk you into something that's not really there. So let's just elaborate on that a little bit. I would tell you, nobody knows how powerful the mind is. I mean, I, I think I have probably a little bit better idea than most people, but I have no idea how powerful the mind is, and I know it's very powerful. I think you have to give respect to your thoughts, and it really boils down to this. Human beings were made of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, and you got to understand it's our thoughts that control the way we feel and the way we behave. If we can learn to control our thoughts, which we can, it takes training, but we can definitely learn to control the thoughts. We can learn to have effective and productive thoughts. We can learn to have less non-effective, non-productive thoughts. But if we can learn to choose the right type of thinking, it makes the entire success of the organism so much more likely. I control my thoughts. I control my behaviors and the way I feel. I control the success of the whole system. And it starts with the thoughts. So you wrote a book called Executive Toughness. What kind of things are you working on with executives? Or is it very similar to what you were doing with professional athletes? Yeah, Executive Toughness. So I told you my first book, 10-Minute Toughness, really very, very popular book in the sports world. I had a lot of people, and and my publisher, McGraw-Hill, really kind of tried to market 10-Minute Toughness as a business book, as well as a sports psychology book. And it, it, it wasn't. I didn't write 10-Minute Toughness for business people. I only worked in the sports world back then. But because they marketed it as a business book, I had a lot of business people reaching out to me, wanting me to come in and work with them and kind of teach them the mental training plan. And it was similar. There were a lot of similarities in the mental training for an athlete as compared to a business person, but it wasn't good enough for me. I mean, it wasn't a true fit. So I spent two or three years researching and getting into the business world, CEOs and CFOs and C-suite people and small business owners. And okay, what are some of the issues they deal with? And how does this training need to be adjusted so that it really makes sense to them? That's what my second book, Executive Toughness, was. It was After two or three years of research and working with people in the business world, it was the adjusted mental training program from 10-Minute Toughness, but applied specifically into the business world. And it was, it still is, the mental training plan I used back then when I was first kind of getting my business going, when I left the sports world, I needed to really kind of create a business presence. And it was the plan that I used for myself, and it was extremely effective for me. And that's why I knew, okay, I've done the research. I've tried it on myself. Now let's put it in a book for other people. And Executive Toughness, again, is one of those books that it has done extremely well because it flat out works for people. 
What's a characteristic among the C-level people that you work with that stands out, that's kind of common theme between them? I would tell you probably three things. Number one, they understand the importance of process goals. You know, you get a lot of people who talk about process, but very few people know exactly what process is. So for example, if you said, well, Jason, what's your process? I could tell you my three process goals. I could tell you my three process goals in my professional life. I could tell you my three process goals in my personal life. They're very clear, very identified. I think about them every day. I execute on them every day. So that's the first thing is having a winning game plan. Specifically, you know what your process goals are. And all a process goal is, you only get three for your personal life. You only get up to three for your professional life. You got to honor channel capacity. But the process goals are what are those most important activities? Do these will position you for the results you're looking for, whether it be in your personal life or your professional life. So that'd be one, having a winning game plan defined with process. Number two, mental preparation. It goes back to that mental workout. Any client I work with, business, sports, it doesn't matter. They've got the mental workout. It's five steps. It just mentally prepares them. It takes a minute and 40 seconds a day. It mentally prepares them to execute on what they're going to face that day. And then the third thing is effectively evaluating your performance on a regular basis. You know, again, most people evaluate themselves through that perfectionist lens. You do 100 things right, one thing less than perfect, and all you're thinking about is that imperfection. Well, that is, again, I said, a pure sign of mental weakness, but it's terrible for performance. I mean, you, you beat your self-confidence up. You don't ever get yourself focused on what you're going to make improvements on or adjustments with. You don't get prepared for just the blocking and tackling of the upcoming day. It's a terrible way to evaluate, and that's what's totally normal. So it's, it would be having your winning game plan on a daily basis, going through the mental preparation, getting yourself mentally prepared to execute on that game plan, and then effectively evaluating. So I'll give you an example. Effective evaluation is just really two parts. One, what'd you do well? You're not allowed to be critical of yourself until you identify, hey, write down three things you did well today. And then what do you want to improve? That's that RSF, that relentless solution-focused mindset that with training, again, if you're answering those two questions daily, what are three things I did well? One thing I want to improve tomorrow, neurons that wire together, or excuse me, neurons that fire together, wire together, neurons that fire apart, wire apart. You train yourself to think differently. Now, I still have a tendency, I do a speech or whatever, and I think to myself, oh man, I should have done that better. And then, I, but I quickly, within seconds, realize that's garbage. Don't do that. What I do well, what do I want to improve? And that causes me to get better, not worse. Yeah, I love that. So an example of like a process goal, let's just use like a, a marathon, for example, as the goal. Part of these things would be like diet goals, for example, or nutrition goals, and then maybe hitting a certain mile mark at this day prior to getting ready for your marathon. Those are types of things that you're talking about as process driven that you need to achieve to get to the ultimate goal. Yeah, remember, for the most part, process is within your effort. It's not result-based. So you might say, follow my nutrition plan. You know, you hire a nutritionist and they say, you got to eat these many calories, you know, in these many categories. This is what your hydration looks like. You can choose to do that or not. That's effort-based if I follow the plan. It could be follow my daily running plan. You know, when you're training for a marathon, every day you have what your training is. Go out and, and not necessarily 
hit your result number, not necessarily based on did you get your time, but did you go do the training? Did you get to practice, start it on time in terms of doing the full practice? So process, yes, but really make sure that it's within your effort. You can choose to do it or choose not to do it. Okay. Okay, perfect. So you recently launched an app to help people with this whole process. What's the name of the app? And can you just, you find it on the app store and tell us about it? Well, I don't even know if you can find it on the app store. I guess we just released it January 4th and I partnered with some heavy hitters. These are the guys that were responsible for Shutterfly and they did a couple hundred million dollar projects. So they really know what they're doing. They reached out to me a year ago. They've got more money than they'll ever be able to spend. And what they wanted to do was make the world a better place. I I love these guys. They're from the Midwest. They moved out to Silicon Valley, had a lot of success. And now they're in a position where they just get to do projects where they make the world a better place. So they were very attracted to how I did my coaching with people. It's very tangible, may not be terribly sexy, but it's extremely effective. And so they asked me a year ago if I would be the coaching element and that they would create an app where In three to five minutes a day, people can train their minds to be more successful. And we launched it in January. The response has been absolutely outstanding so far. I would tell you, if you have any interest in mental training, Google, if you can't find it in the App Store, just Google Level Up and my name. It'll show up. And right now, they're giving discounted pricing. It's very soon. I think they were a little surprised. They said, actually, this week in one of our meetings that this program level up is moving faster than their other two programs that were both over a hundred million each. So that's great. You know, they're a little surprised that we got a really a huge following in Europe and obviously in the United States. So it's a lot of people are on there. If you're trying to get somewhere with mental training, give this a look. And here's the great thing. I think you can get on for a hundred dollars. I know the final price is going to be 500, but I think if you search, you can find hundred dollar price right now. We'll give your money back at any point if people don't like what they're getting. It's just $100 for the year. If you're not getting value, no questions asked, we'll refund the money. I've done well financially. These guys obviously have done well financially. Nobody is trying to do a money grab here. Just the opposite. We're trying to give value to people at a very reasonable price. So what is happening in that three to five minutes? Is it you talking or do they put something in about how they're feeling for the day or what's going on? Well, I don't know about the how you're feeling for the day as much as it's training. So I'm going to, in videos, a lot of it is video. There's some kind of written content, but it's, I'm going to teach you the mental training plan. So the first 30 to 45 days, you learn to do what's called your mental workout. And your mental workout is you write down three things you've done well. You identify your three most important things you need to get done tomorrow. And then you do this five-step mental workout that I talked about. We teach all those things and the why behind it as you go. So it takes a little while. It's three to five minutes. I'm just trying to give them bite-sized pieces. But it's. I would just tell you, I'm extremely proud of it. People are going to get some great, great value at a very low price on this. And if you're not happy, get your money back. Okay, perfect. Well, I'm going to attach all this information in the show notes and I'll attach Dr. Jason's website and this app and I'll have it all in there. I appreciate you being on the show. I love the title of your book. I love the word relentless. I feel like I'm a fighter. I'm a hustler. So I'm here for it. So I appreciate your time today. I appreciate you having me and all the best to those listeners out there. Let me say one final thing. 
And this is something I remind myself of often. And I've heard many, many people say it different ways. I love how Coach Wooden said it. He said, it's what you learn after you know it all that counts. And look, just keep yourself as an open learner your whole life. Good things happen when you keep your mind open to learning and improve. So thanks so much for having me. That's one of the most exciting parts about life, I feel like. Always learning something new. If you're not growing, you're dying. Amen. That's how Lou Holtz said it. Human beings are like trees. The second you stop growing, you start dying. It's the same concept. So just keep learning and be proud you're on this podcast. You're obviously trying to learn and grow. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. 